Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Welcome to The Bridge. We are a show which connects East and West. My name is Jason. I'm originally from San Francisco, California, now living in beautiful Beijing. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today with us, we have a special guest, Michael Crook, who is a British Canadian born in Beijing in 1951 of parents who met in China. His Canadian mother, who is an icon in China, Isabel, was born in Chengdu in 1915 of education missionary parents and helped found perhaps China's first Montessori kindergarten, as well as a primary school in Chengdu. His British father, David, came to China in 1938, taught at St. John's University in Shanghai and Nanking University in Chengdu. In the late 1940s, Isabel and David helped found what later became Beijing Foreign Studies University, a very prestigious university here in Beijing. Michael grew up on the university campus in Beijing and attended Chinese primary and middle schools, lived through the Cultural Revolution, worked in Chinese factories, that's very interesting, <laughs> and then went to university in Britain. He began his teaching career in Britain, teaching Chinese at Polytechnic of Central London. He has taught in Britain the U.S. and China, after some years working for the Canadian Development Assistance Program in China, he helped found the Western Academy of Beijing in 1994, where he taught and served for some years as China Studies Coordinator. Michael is involved in rural development, environmental protection, and heritage preservation, especially of old Beijing. Welcome to the program. Delighted. Yeah, we're delighted. Uh, could you tell us in your own words a little bit about your family history? My grandparents, my mother's parents were Canadian missionaries. They came out right at the end of the uh, Qing dynasty, the, when, right wow. at the time <laughs> of the uh, founding of the Republic of China. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, my grandma's older sister had also come out, uh, and her husband, uh, Albert Elson, actually, they uh, won a medal from the president of the Republic of China in 1912 for assisting with some disaster relief. Wow. So these were, these were, I'd say, you know, bleeding heart do-gooders, <laughs> Christians, you know, I personally feel that the Christian tradition has a lot in common with the communist ideals mm. of, you know, fraternity mm. and, and, and so on. And uh, they were jolly good people. Mm. I admire my grandparents. Well, that is uh, incredibly interesting. So what provinces were your grandparents or parents? So they went to West China about the missionaries. They came in, some would say, on the coattails of the uh, Western imperialists. Mm. And the Western imperialists decided to, well, they sort of carve up China mm. with their spheres of influence. The, the British were in Fujian and some... Anyway, the older yeah. ones took the coastal provinces. Mm -hmm. By the time of the late 19th century, so we're talking about 1890s, only the hinterland was left. Mm -hmm. uh, so Canada wanted to have their, and they were sort of 
by a gentleman's agreement, I suppose, they got Henan and Sichuan provinces, both inland uh, mm. provinces. And so that's where they went. And um, Grandpa was uh, appointed Dean of Education Department of the West China Union University, which was founded in 19... 19- 10. So he came out in 1912, actually, and was the founding director of the Department of Education. And that's why my grandma got to help. Because they, the education department was mainly to train teachers mm-hmm. in Western-style education, which has a lot to do with China's modern education system mm. because the old, you know, exam system for officialdom and all that was was uh, antiquated. I find it really interesting. Your focus has been teaching Chinese and doing translation a lot. Yeah, yeah. But in fact, you could probably write books on history. Have you taken an interest in that at all? I'm, I'm interested in history, yes. But I mean, actually, family history, world history. China. I did teach when I taught abroad... I think you mentioned that I had taught in Britain and mm. the US. In the US, I taught in Wellesley College, mm. which is a girls' college. And uh, in China, it's well known for having been the alma mater of uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek wow. and also Xie Bingxin, Bingxin, the famous uh, woman writer. And uh, they had a good Chinese department that taught language and culture. And I taught Chinese history, Chinese politics, well, China studies, basically. Mm. And the best way to learn something Mm. is to be asked to teach it. Oh, wow. Well, um, China has managed to eliminate absolute poverty by IMF standards in 2020. And you're uh, an expert in this field. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the strategies that China used to accomplish this feat? Well, let's say, first of all, even balanced development and and, uh, poverty, you know, whether it's 1%, 10% or 30% of the population Mm. in in a poor country. I guess there are least developed countries, I don't know, Haiti or somewhere where, Mm. who knows, an entire population might be under the poverty line. But in China, it was uneven. So one quick way is to try and change the balance. How do you change the balance? The government program encouraged linkages between coastal, more advanced parts of the country to adopt, let's say, pair them off, pair Mm. a poor province with a rich province, Mm. pair off some uh, sector of the industry and uh, with an area that is severely lacking in that particular area. Uh, I believe in promoting uh, friendship, mm-hmm. uh, international friendship. And mm-hmm. China has an organization called the um, Chinese Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, mm. which is a ministry-level organization. Mm. You know, it's it's government-funded. They were assigned, or did they choose? In any case, they were matched up with a poor part of uh, Shanxi province, which mm-hmm. is in the you know Lus Plateau. The environment is rather uh, you know the short of water there; uh, it's dusty and and so on and so forth. And uh, so I was invited by this we call them the Yosia, the Friendship Association, to go on a trip to their adoptive <laughs> yeah. poor area, Xinjiang, in Shanxi, a couple of months ago. Mm. Uh, it was fascinating. So I went to this county town. And what Yosia had been, you know, because of their foreign 
connections. They had friends from embassies and multinational corporations, and, mm. and they invited some of them to go along. So that was like meet investment mm. uh, opportunities. One strategy was to relocate the um, population in the rural areas that had traditionally been subsistence farming and a very low productive area mm. into urban areas uh, with better infrastructure so that they could um, become employed in much more productive areas. We were put in a hotel on a hilltop <laughs> with a grand view of the of the county, Xinjiang, the county town. Mm. And I looked down and saw some beautiful blocks of flats that were only half full. Mm -hmm. So I asked, and they said, oh, these are resettlement buildings. Mm. And um, folks, qualifying poor families from outlying villages, all they have to do is pay 10,000 yuan yeah. to own a flat. I wow. looked at these flats look really nice. I stole down and wandered up and there were no guards. And I just went in. It looked very nice. And um, uh, the other thing is they're guaranteed at least one employed position per family. So that in order full -time to get position. the- uh, Yeah, one full-time sufficient to, <laughs> so that they yeah. can you know live. And of course, other family members are, can, can look around and be yeah. enterprising. So the thing is, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a city person. Yeah. I've only ever lived in Beijing, London, Boston hmm. with you know short excursions into the countryside, which I idealize. And and when I saw these, I thought, well, who living in a beautiful village would want to come and live in one of these flats? Well, the next day they put us all on a bus and we drove an hour or two to, hmm. to a their beautiful, beautiful from. village. Hmm. And they were holding a ceremony to mark the uh, a culture square that they were building in the village. And uh, I was rather disappointed when I heard. So I asked some people. So so what had it been before being turned into a culture square? They said, "Well, this is actually the site of the old village school." I felt rather sad. I I believe in village schools, mm -hmm. but um, but of course, when you're in a poor area. A village school, a one-room or a three-room schoolhouse, uh, generally the teachers, uh, who they don't get good teachers, the facilities are not so good. So the government program to consolidate rural schools, increase, so the, quality of increase the quality of teaching has led to the closure of quite a few village schools. But so I felt a bit sad, but then I thought, well, maybe it's for the best. But standing around... Uh, just looking on at these, you know, while leaders from the Yosia making their speeches and town, uh, township and village leaders making their speeches, there were a group of people standing around who looked pretty poor. They were poor villagers. So mm -hmm. I, so I engaged them, and uh, so I started chatting. And I, and so I questioned one old lady who wasn't very well dressed. I said, you know, these this program of these resettlement flats. Um, um, how come you're still here mm. and, and not there? And uh, don't you like it? So I was sort of yeah. angling for say, oh, we, you know, Xiang Chou, you know, the, the nostalgia for the whatever. And she said, oh, unfortunately, I don't qualify. I'm not poor enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. So, but uh, but of course, I think that it would be good not to denude the rural, you know, mm-hmm. the countryside because uh, it then caretakers are needed, and I think that villages, yeah, sure, it, they have have to be sustainable. But the, so uh, it seemed to me that when I asked, my prejudices were unfounded. Mm-hmm. These people were fully in support of the resettlement program mm-hmm. in this in this particular case. And and it seemed that the uh, the relocation of the kids to the nearest township school mm-hmm. instead of the village school, it seemed to me my anecdotal, my you know, unscientific little yeah. <laughs> survey suggested that they were in general pleased. Because after all, you know, what used to be a two hour walk, they now had their school bus that would mm. just take them there in ten minutes. So yeah. Well oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. So you mentioned coupling wealthier Uh, affluent towns and cities with places that are less affluent. Yes, yes, yes. I guess very poverty-stricken, because we're talking about raising to IMF levels. So in what way did these communities help each other? Because you're talking about investment, uh, is that uh, part of it? uh, Yes, I think attracting business and helping them. You know, I'm a member of ICCIC, this gung-ho organization that that is involved in rural development. And uh, so we actually signed sort of cooperation agreements with five poor counties Hmm. in southwest China. Besides this sort of coastal inland linkages, Mm -hmm. there was one um, on a local level, Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province, is actually fairly affluent. Uh, But you drive a couple of hours into the mountains. Now, what used to be, what for my grandparents was a three-day hike, or mm. riding donkey <laughs> yeah. ride or or carry a chair, you know, uh, is now like two hours uh, yeah. from the family letters. I know they well, certainly get, some of know. that is to- for tourists because there are Taoist and Buddhist temples in the mountains and things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the thing is, that's that's what the oh, call them relatively wealthy city folk. That's their perception. A beautiful mm. place. But I'm talking about the people who actually live there. Yeah. For, uh, so I went. So um, Gung Ho set up this center for what they call Chengxiang Duizie, urban rural linkage, mm. and the idea was let's get the rural areas where the environment is totally clean and un mm. you know they haven't been using pesticides or or overuse of uh chemical fertilizers mm. and so on. It's good organic produce, mm. but it's tucked away behind the hills. So I visited this place in, in Beitran County, which was one of the areas that had suffered severely in the May 12th earthquake back in 2008. Mm, mm. And um, so what they do is they have this center, which is, it's sort of like a fair trade center mm. where they tell wealthy people here come here and you can buy produce from let's say Beichuan, which is organic and clean you pay a little more but mm. then it's fair trade and nice kind people so i went to visit oh i don't believe in reincarnations but if i were reincarnated as a chicken for example <laughs> i'd love to be on one of those because in Beichuan, i saw this hillside mm. Chickens just wandering up and down the valley. It, there was a closure, mm. um, but 
you know, free range. I visited battery chicken places, are very sad affairs. But so this way of um, equalizing. Mm-hmm. May, may I break yeah. this down a little bit? Uh, so there are two aspects of what I understand mm-hmm. you're saying. One mm-hmm. is developing a center for import and export within yes, yes. China so that people in more affluent areas can buy well, let things me, there. Th- th- what about the yeah. second part is transportation. Yeah. So were, the were, got, were the roads already there before you? No, th- that part basically has been done by the government. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there are many... Um, uh, parts of the world where private industry, but the, the truth is that um, infrastructure often is uh, doesn't pay, doesn't give pay quick dividends. Mm. Sure, in the when I lived in the U.S., I used toll highways and and uh, you know interstate highways. You well, you pay, but so many uh, the rural roads, very few are toll roads. Mm. They're, they're just government invested. So that the government is playing a tremendous mm. role. The Chinese slogan about build roads and bridges and, and so on. But the I, I want to just add about the the international side. Sure, absolutely. Please do. Now, because I didn't mention that. One, one uh, county that I visited had um, most of the county revenues had come from the coal deposits that they mm-hmm. were blessed with. What they were unblessed with was high quality coal. It was high in sulfur and so on and so forth. So the government, for for environmental purposes, ordered the closure of the coal mines in this particular county, which led to a severe drop in their revenues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what to do? Well, the hillsides were, they didn't have too much arable land, but uh, uh, one brilliant idea that someone had was um, plant tzishu. Now, tzishu is, uh, what is it? Is it varnish? Is it lacquer? Lacquer trees. I didn't know tr- lacquer. Yeah, lacquer. <laughs> like we, we, you know, you know about maple syrup coming yeah, out yeah, of maple yeah. trees sure. and rubber coming lacquer out of rubber trees. But lacquer, lacquer tree. you, you, you get these trees and you cut little slits. It's just like collecting maple syrup. You collect lacquer. When it comes out, it's milky white, but as it oxidizes and so on and dries, it finally this beautiful lacquer. China, they have come excavated beautiful lacquerware from two, three thousand years ago. The Han Dynasty made beautiful lacquerware. The foreign trade people got an idea that there's a good market for lacquer in Korea and Japan. Mm. So now with the coal mines shut down, what do you do? Plant these hillsides, cover them with lacquer trees Mm. and export the lacquer. Mm. And uh, gung-ho actually participated in this because uh, the uh, the capital investment the outlay to get these lacquer saplings out there first of all you plant them and it takes about 3 or 4 up to 5 years before they start uh, mm-hmm. uh, producing lacquer and so we had this project it was like an investment so in order to develop wealth in this uh, very difficult hillside that you invested in seeds for lacquer trees. Yeah. So uh, did I mention the, the uh, it takes a while to get them productive, mm. takes maybe five years. So what they do is first you need to get a nursery, a tree nursery to get the saplings, mm. which 
takes a while. Mm. And then you transplant the saplings onto the hillsides mm. because the, the nurseries are on so uh, flat land. They don't need much water. No. They, well, that area, unlike North China, South China is, oh, is lush and green. This yeah. is different. Uh, no, the climate is not very high maintenance. You mm -hmm. don't know, there's no irrigation needed. I I toured, I saw these lacquer copses and forests. And uh, so what Gung Ho did was we we encouraged our members to sort of sponsor the the planting of the lacquer trees mm -hmm. and you get a certificate, you know, I paid for four ten I donated 10, 20, 30 saplings. Yeah. And then uh, then in five years' time, when they become productive, theoretically, they will refund the money to us. But I think that our members were quite Probably. happy to yeah. say, no, nah, just keep it. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. then there will also be mechanisms for exporting this to Oh, yes, of course. Well. That's important. You don't want to... <laughs> outlay all this stuff and and so then the linkages so then uh this place they set up a sort of a a small lacquer museum it was fascinating what you can make with with lacquer and then the thing is uh traders can come it's like a, you know if you want to market something you've got to have buyers want to see see the you know the source and the, and the produce and this mm -hmm. was um so bringing people in, all this is part of the, the whole stream, you know, mm -hmm. of so trade. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. What, what, if I could surmise in all the different individual cases you've given us about how um, poverty alleviation has worked, both mm -hmm. in, with your organization and with the Chinese government, a lot of it is about building economies that are linked with either the rest of the Chinese economy, local economies, yeah. or international communities. Yes, yes. So it's not just about giving aid, which might dissipate, but it's about building mm. economies that last so that poverty alleviation can take place in these remote areas. Yes. I, you know, uh, we uh, Gung-Ho also has a program called Yigodaijuan uh, to buy instead of donate. There's an old story in, in going back a couple of thousand years ago of, uh, in China about during a famine, there was a man who wouldn't eat. <laughs> he wouldn't take food from someone who clucked his tongue. You know, so the story is that some wealthy person uh, seeing these famine, these uh, refugees going by, he, at the roadside, he had his stock of food and he would go, you know, here, come on, come and get it. And they're poor. These poor people, they're proud. Mm. And this, as you said, I'm not taking aid, food yeah. from the cluckers. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I think that's very understandable. That's why instead of promoting just giving, mm. we say, you go there, Jen, just buy their produce. Yeah. And you incorporate doing, them into yeah, the larger and then economy. then they feel good. They're not just taking aid; they're giving you something in in return. Give them uh, self respect. Yeah. yeah. So like, we actually just uh, we've recently tied this. You go that you had this buy buy instead of donate mm -hmm. program uh, into the the recent uh, earthquake in um, 
Turkey and, and yeah, Syria. Yeah. Uh, we want to we want to help mm-hmm. in some way, and we're just planning the launch, about to launch an Igodaijuan, where we will buy. Uh, we've asked our producers to consolidate their rural. It could be nuts. It could be um, buckwheat uh, stuff that they produce in, in these Syria in these Turkey. poor areas. No, 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 in China. In China. Yeah. So these rural Chinese oh. uh, producers go to this this consolidate. You know, I mentioned this sort of middle, this rural urban linkage. Yeah. So they bring this stuff, and we produce uh, these gift packs mm. consisting of oh locally made uh, cured meats, sausage. Oh, I love Sichuan sausage, <laughs> uh, or, or Cantonese sausage for those who don't like the spicy la the ma the. You know, and uh, so. These gift packs, we first of all give a fair trade price to the producers, mm. and so let's say that's uh, three hundred yuan for this uh, this gift pack. Yeah. Um, uh, so part of it goes to them, mm-hmm. and then we do a markup. We mark it up by thirty percent, let's mm-hmm. say, so that a uh, a, a seven hundred yuan gift pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, ordered by any middle class person who wants to, you know, enjoy some local produce, mm-hmm. all organic and so on. Thirty percent will go into a special account, which goes right. to Turkey to uh, to help the the uh, the victims of the earthquake. Well, every time you were telling that story, I thought it was going to go a different direction. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we then we get donations and then send them, but you're actually using the market to yes. create the revenue. <laughs> yes, to, yes, that's a, that's really quite. <laughs> I, I want to say another thing is is these are nature and tr- commodities exchange and so on but actually another really important way mm-hmm. to um uh, you know eradicate poverty mm-hmm. is uh equity for human resources Could you uh, with the reform and opening in the 80s there was tremendous flow of labor to the coastal provinces for you know generations of farmers mm-hmm. uh, they, mm-hmm. they they go and work for foxconn or yeah. or, or the and automobile the industry in the and well they stay they how long do they stay they started in the 80s drifting to the coastal areas but then by say 10 20 years ago what with 2000 what with the economic um, downturn in the west and 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 also you can go on building buildings because mm-hmm. the, the skyscrapers on the coastal parts of china are mostly built by sutran hun whatever hunan workers but you know, you build finally mm-hmm. you've got enough buildings <laughs> mm-hmm. so it doesn't continue forever and so then there has been a back drift back mm-hmm. and this has been wonderful mm-hmm. because farmers with very little education go to the cities they stay there for 10 maybe 20 years yeah they then because of economic downturn or because of uh, whatever uh they go back mm-hmm. and now they're different people they have learned skills. They've become cosmopolitan, yeah. and and how to make them productive. This is another area where the government has helped, mm-hmm. and Gung Ho has also helped in Pisian, for example. Pisian County is an out is a sort of suburban county uh, to the west of uh, Chengdu. Mm-hmm. Foxconn had decided to invest and and take a factory there, so mm-hmm. the government built this whole industrial complex. Yeah waiting for them to come. 
they cancel. Mm. So they were stuck with these buildings and this in industrial park. So what did they do? They turned it into a sort of an incubator because there mm. happened to be this backflow of people and the the returnees from the coastal like an areas. economic demonstration facility, something like that? In, in my case, it wasn't demonstration. It was more training. Mm. So cheap or even free accommodation for mm. the returnees to live in these tower blocks that were built next to the in, industrial wow. park. Gung-ho got a free, I, I forget how large it was, but we got two or 300 square meters. Uh, we signed an agreement, said, mm -hmm. we're going to help train up some of these people and we'll try to register not less than, say, 30 small or medium enterprises in the year. Wow. You know, those were the terms. I went to visit this place. There were people learning various things mm. like uh, industrial design, marketing, and so on and so forth. So after touring this incubator, this gung-ho incubator in mm. Pisiang County, uh, we were all taken to lunch at the canteen, which was downstairs from one of these blocks of flats where mm. the return, the erstwhile migrant workers who had returned to their homeland mm. were eating. The food was pretty good and it was heavily subsidized. Mm. So, the, so basically the government is... It's the human, because after all, where mm. does wealth come from? You know, mm. you can build roads, you can whatever, but if you don't have productive people. So that's another very important aspect of, of uh, the poverty alleviation or eradication is the human resources. Oh, yeah. You're listening to The Bridge. I love this topic. I would actually love to have you back for an hour just to talk about this one topic alone. But you are also, you have fingers in many pies, as it were. And you're very knowledgeable about afforestation and reforestation and environmentalism and animal protection. Can you tell us, just to start off with, because I think the big one is the Green Great Wall. Could you tell us a little bit about what is going on? What is China doing in terms of afforestation here in China? My family have been around for uh, about 100 years in China, hmm. and uh, my grandparents and my parents uh, like to take pictures. So we have the family album. Hmm. Uh, we, we can compare <laughs> land for They all love to hike and so on. So hmm. going to the hills and so on. I have just living in Beijing. I have pictures of the Western Hills as they appeared in the early 50s. Mm. They were basically nude of trees, mm. the, the Beijing's Western Hills. You know, there's the Xiangshan Park yeah, and the yeah. Badachu Park. And, Badachu and, was bare. No, no. What you looked out and saw was a little pocket of green. Oh, that's Badachu. A pocket of green here. No, that's Xiangshan Park. And in between was bare hillside. I'm, if you go to those hillsides, yeah, no, they're completely green now. But uh, Badachu and Xiangshan are what about three, four kilometers apart? What year are you talking about? I'm talking about the early fifties. Wow, totally bare. If you go there, actually, you can check for yourself the age of the trees on the intervening hillsides. Mm. There's 
basically nothing more than about 50, 60, 70 years old. I mean, you get the occasional Guzong ancient pine tree. And how did it happen? My parents are teachers in the Beijing Foreign Studies University, which was then called the Beijing Foreign Languages Institute. And around 1955, this was a national campaign of afforestation. Again, this linkage idea. There was a village in Mentogou district, mm-hmm. well, let's say about 50 miles mm-hmm. southwest of, of the Third Ring Road where my mm-hmm. campus was. They took the train to a village called Anjiazhuang and stayed a week or two. Mm-hmm. And the idea was faculty and students would help to green the hillsides around this village of Anjiazhuang or mm-hmm. Anjiazhuang. By sowing. So yeah, see. yeah. So they they had saplings ready. I forget where they got the saplings. They they, they grew little pine trees mm. from tiny. Uh, spent the days carrying water up, going up the hillside, digging little holes, and and putting the saplings in and greening. They stayed a week, and in the evenings it was fun. They said they would hold cultural evenings because students and teachers would put on little performances mm. for the villagers and singing and whatnots. And it was a great experience for the students. I. I love to take my student, my WAB students on field trips, and we've done similar things. So I've been back and, okay, the survival rate was not 100%, mm-hmm. but it was good enough. Mm-hmm. It was pretty green. I tried to emulate my parents in that school. And we went to a, a, a township called Shicheng, which literally means Stonewall. Mm. We climbed up the hillside just to the west side of the of the Shicheng Township. Mm. Who's doing this? Now, I have flown over the Rockies in Canada mm. and, and so on, and I've seen agribusiness and uh, hillsides planted with trees and then... And then an entire hillside bare because it has all been sawn down to, Mm. uh, well, pulp or whatever. Mm -hmm. So now that model, I think, was a business model. Mm -hmm. This is much more a sort of a social model. Mm. Now, obviously, for sustainability, you want afforestation to to be able to pay for itself. Mm. But uh, but I think that the initial work in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the tremendous greening Mm. of large tracts of China was done really labor of love, (laughs) Mm. I think, with, with government support. You're listening to The Bridge. We talked about poverty alleviation, but China has transformed its policy to a new goal by uh, 2035, uh, general prosperity. I forget what the exact term, <laughs> common prosperity yeah, programs. Yeah, Can so you common. tell, yeah. what what is this, how is it different, and uh, what is it, what are some of the goals? Yeah, I, I this is so, so difficult. Hmm. When, um, when my parents came back to China after the Second World War, they had met in China during the war. Mm. um, uh, But they came back and did a rural study in a small village in Hebei province. Uh, They were studying the land reform, Mm -hmm. the communist land reform, which, which of course, is the... If you talk about poverty reduction... uh, the 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 redistribution of the land to the tiller mm. was, I think, 
essential in the rise of China. Mm. I mean, the 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 the. I mean, you talk about the recent eradication of poverty, the whole lifting of China from the the sick man of Asia mm. or the, one of the poorest countries in the world to a, oh, I don't know, a ranking of of I don't know eighty out of two hundred or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that started way back in the in the fifties, mm. and they uh, when they were doing this study. They were kindly assigned to live in a landlord's house, and this, <laughs> and and my dad's remark was, well, by the standards of the local peasants, he was really, yeah. really prosperous. But I tell you, <laughs> this was, you know, outdoor squat toilets and so on. There was no, you know. So, what is prosperity? It's it's really a very um, relative term. I think that, uh, first of all, uh, if we're talking poverty, I think that besides food and shelter, access to education, clean water, uh, um, healthcare, and so on, these are shaking that off is, is lifting out of poverty. As for prosperity, I feel that it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, my own view is that if you look at the average footprint environmental Mm. footprint. Is the earth sustainable for truly prosperous living? My own view is that the what are often called the developed countries mm-hmm. are perhaps the overdeveloped countries. Mm-hmm. Their per capita consumption of energy and all kinds of resources, if this were emulated by the other 80% of the world, you know, the earth would just... It does seem that China is, firstly, it's leading in wind energy. It's leading in, ah, yes. in, in uh, solar panel energy yes, and yes. hydro. And mm. it seems like it has more of that than any other nation. I yes, think yes. three or four times as much as the United States. Certainly there's coal there, but it's going to be reduced over a period yes, of time. Yes. Isn't there a way that China can develop towards common prosperity without copying the well, bad it, habits. Well, that's exactly what, what I feel is necessary. I think that what is the goal for prosperity? Mm-hmm. If, the, if, if someone thinks that the goal should be that uh, every individual will be uh, living in a lifestyle that consumes however many megawatts mm-hmm. <laughs> of energy or mineral resources mm-hmm. and, and, and so on, and so, or water even, mm-hmm. you know, I think that aiming for a prosperity that is sustainable. Mm-hmm. My daughter stopped eating beef. I know Fossil that, fuel emissions, yeah. Yeah, well, there's emissions. And also, uh, Dr. Jane Goodall, I read somewhere, says that every pound of beef uh, requires uh, however many um, dozens of liters of water mm-hmm. to produce. And so, so it's to do with resources. So I think that prosperity... Okay, traditionally it's seen, it's associated with material conditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My own prejudice is that quality of life is determined not solely by material conditions, but by social relationships and, and values and mm-hmm. so on. Living in a peaceful, harmonious community. Sometimes, if well, I don't want to go back to the who were those the cynics in you know who who were those Greeks who liked to live in barrels and <laughs> and and uh, eat scraps and so on, uh, but but claim to be very happy, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm hoping that China's goals for prosperity will be ones where the social spiritual environment. Mm-hmm. 
and the physical material environment, so services, mm -hmm. human relationships, will increase happiness. I keep looking at uh, you know the uh, philosopher Rawls' theory of justice, and his notion seems to be that inequalities will continue, but the inequalities should be such as to promote the welfare of the bottom section of society more than the top section. Could you elaborate on what you mean there? Yeah. Well, one measure of what I'm talking about is the Gini coefficient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, when you have a society where, let's say, 5% uh, control the 80% uh, of the wealth, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it's going to make for, for unhappiness and mm -hmm. jealousy and, and, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So I think that how do you narrow that? For example, if, okay, this business, we're doing well, we're going to give our, um, our employees a 3% increase in compensation, mm -hmm. for example. For Rawls' theory would suggest that maybe, maybe the 3% is, is not a flat rate, but uh, an average where the bottom gets maybe 10%, mm. uh, whereas the top might just get 2%. Now, this is in a contrast to the failing banks where <laughs> bailouts of places where senior management were paying themselves bonuses of millions when, when the whole thing was going down the drain. Well, there, there's a debate within China about whether China has become capitalist or whether it's really ah. truly socialist. And in terms of creating common prosperity, maybe with the goal of 2035 or somewhere around then, do you think that the direction that China would head would be to be narrowing the narrowing the Gini coefficient? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that if you look at um, well, what is capitalism? What is socialism? Socialism, by the way, I I take the Marxist definition of it being a transition to communism, mm -hmm. and uh, communism is this utopia. utopia. Well, if you read Yet. Thomas More's utopia, oh, yes. Yes. is one where you know, where there is no private property and there is sufficiency and there is but total democracy and stuff. So realized. Uh, not yes, yet, yes. certainly not. But is it a worthy ideal? It's like the horizon. You never actually get there, but you aim in a certain direction. Mm. And uh, I personally subscribe to, I think that- Historical dialect. The, the ideal of uh, a society where humans live, you know- I mean, I would in, love in, that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So are we headed that way? And the Communist Manifesto that was published by, you know, Engels, mm. Marx mm. and Engels, had the, there was a 10-point program which were steps, you know, the, was it to have an eight-hour working day, do you reduce the gap between whatever? I think China is doing that. Mm. Now, many of the... I remember reading uh, that in a certain Japanese encyclopedia, the entry for Marx was a capitalist reformer or great reformist for the capitalist system. Because if you look at the Communist Manifesto, many of those graduated income tax and so on, mm -hmm. they yeah. have, they've been adopted by In the, the capitalist countries. Yes, yes. I mean, they're taking a lesson from Marx. So, <laughs> Marx's road to socialism, actually, many of those steps uh, mm. ha have been taken. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think China is taking, it's a gradual process. Mm -hmm. And so long as the direction is one where I like to look at the reductions in the, the three great differences, the mental and manual labor, traditionally mental workers have it much better off than manual labor. Mm. Uh, rural, 
versus urban, you know, a great difference and insult. So I think reducing the three great differences. What was the third D? I'm oh, curious goodness now. Me. I'll have to look <laughs> it up myself. You don't look it up. You look it up. Homework for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think what is what China has done now, oh, uh, also back to the Communist Manifesto, mm -hmm. it talks about how uh, what sectors of the economy should be controlled by the state infrastructure and so on. So mm -hmm. Now, is China here? China, I think, went from one extreme, like in the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. state ownership, planned economy. SOEs. Uh, yeah, basically, that all of industry, you, there was no private sector. Mm -hmm. Now, is, is, that, uh, is that what Marx dictates? No. Well, that's for the future, maybe. But um, the reform and opening brought a more diverse economy mm -hmm. so that um, besides the plan section, and let's not pretend that the Western countries are all market economies. I mean, the government meddling with well, important sectors of the economy, mm -hmm. I mean, dictating prices or Regularly. whatever, regulate. Any, yeah. It has to happen. There has to be regulation. Mm -hmm. Of course, it depends who, who it's regulated for the yeah. benefit, benefit of. And it seems to be the banks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think China, with the reform and opening, there was a, a large private sector has emerged, an unplanned uh, section where basically market forces are determining things. And I think that's healthy, having a mixed economy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The state must remain dominant, I feel, because let's face it, market benefits those who have the greater purchasing power. That mm -hmm, di mm -hmm. dictates what are you going to produce? Luxury items mm. or basic foodstuffs? Mm. Uh, a while back, you say, oh, cheap, effective medicines were hard to find uh, because the profit margin was too low. So that, so I feel that uh, wholesale neoliberalism, I, I don't think, is the answer. Mm. Uh, and I hope that China continues to have a state-regulated uh, or even owned sector of the economy. I think that's good for the public welfare rather than maximizing profits, uh, maximizing welfare of the people. You're listening to The Bridge. In terms of your organization, the ICCIC, yes. is there anything that people, regular folks in their daily lives, our listeners, whether they be in China or in other countries, are there ways that they can help contribute to the ideals that you are trying oh. to develop in society? Yeah, well, ICCIC stands for International Committee for the Promotion of Chinese Industrial Cooperatives. The last C is the vital word, mm. cooperation. I feel that they're, they're sort of, in terms of human progress, uh, different cooperation and competition have both served mm. to, you know, push progress. However, my own prejudice is in favor of cooperation rather than competition, which often leads to overproduction, perhaps even conflict and, and so on. So competition, okay, but mm -hmm. uh, that needs to be, uh, when we look at international relations, I think that uh, do countries see each other as competitors or, mm. or cooperators? I think that's uh, very... Uh, <laughs> so what, what can I see? See, I see one is, I think that to promote this sense of, of cooperation, international the value of cooperation, cooperation internationally. I know that the West... The rugged individualism is what America, for example, the wealthiest nation 
on Earth right now. Yeah, there are many negatives, but let's face it, quality of life in general, productivity is high, contribution to science. There are so many wonderful things have happened in America. I think of Edison and whoever deserves the credit for those wonderful inventions. I can't live without my cell phone, which I trace back to the old (laughs) telephone. Mm. Um, These are wonderful things. There was a lot of competition there, and you know mm-hmm. who who was it? Was it Tesla, uh, Tesla, or was it so and so, and Bell and whatnot? Mm-hmm. But for science, scientific knowledge, people who want to patent the gene sequencing technology, I just said, you know, I believe in sharing. I think mm-hmm. society as a whole would benefit with much more sharing. But for practical things, so that's um, the the cooperation can be exhibited in in the social, the business formation of cooperatives. Mm -hmm. The wonderful thing about cooperatives, if I look at Marx, Marx was very much in favor. The thing is that he looked at capitalism and you get a labor capital dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I own the stuff and you do the work Mm -hmm. and I benefit more than you. Okay, I pay pay you a wage, but uh, guess who's amassing the fortunes? Mm -hmm. It's it's the capital Mm -hmm. rather than the labor side. And the nice thing about cooperatives is the owner is the worker, Mm -hmm. say workers' Mm -hmm. cooperatives. And and so you don't have this class conflict. Mm -hmm. It's, well, it's cooperative. Because if the business succeeds... And that's why, and I'm very happy to say that ICCIC has played its role in promoting the cooperative sector of the economy, which is actually very healthy in many Western countries, mm-hmm. Canada, the US, uh, um, Denmark, uh, you know, cooperative banks. Mondragon. Cooperative- Mondragon. Mm. I, I led a group of, of uh, ICCIC to Spain to mm. visit to the Basque country, to visit the Mondragon. Mm. Oh, there's a business model mm. that I would love to see replicated Everywhere. through the Everywhere. world, throughout yeah, the world. I agree. But not just Mondragon. I led an ICCIC group to Gujarat in India, and we went to a, a small town called Anan, which was famous for their uh, dairy cooperative. Wow. It was really poor. We visited this village, and I must say, while we were being shown you know, the village enterprise, one of our members slunk off to see the village and oh, some of those villages were dreadfully poor. But the wonderful thing was, then they sh- took us to visit the state-of-the-art dairy factory that was making yogurt and, and ice cream and whatnot. Oh, brand new stuff. Mm. The factory must have cost, I don't know, millions. Mm. And while we were touring, we noticed a group of bedraggled looking Indian women with some children with their faces were not that clean. And they were touring the place. And my fellow members say, asked the asked our guide, say, um, what are they doing here? I said, oh, they're the shareholders. They own this place. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, whoa. Oh, now that just warmed the cockles of my heart. Mm-hmm. I just say, so the cooperative model. But of course, cooperation is not just about production or service or credit cooperatives. It's 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 about international cooperation and so on. Like I mentioned, one way if if when we launch our um Turkish earthquake mm-hmm. aid packet where you buy a bundle of goodies, you can yeah. there are two models. You can buy the Beautiful Liangshan model. And this is on the website. Well, actually, we're just about to launch it. 
Uh, it it should be in the next few days. Mm -hmm. We're we're looking at the details because how to get the money to Turkey, how to get the money from the purchasers into ICCIC. And there's a whole lot of technical issues to be resolved. But I'm hopeful that the uh, next few days. But there another one for the aid in Syria. We have this thing called the bowl of rice program. Mm. And uh, the bowl of rice charity, it's like charity eating. I've been involved in, you know, get a lot of people to pay a hundred bucks to eat food that is worth, say, 10 bucks. And Mm. then the 90 goes, you know, these sort of charity dinners or balls or whatever. So it's like that. And look on the internet, bowl of rice. And uh, what you do is you invite your friends Mm. to a dinner and say, come on, let's have a bowl of rice dinner. We each pay, let's say, 200 Mm. yuan, this is, in China. And it's perfectly easy to get a delicious bowl of noodles for 20 or 30 yuan. And then you report it to ICCIC. Tell us you're doing your bowl of rice. You can do it on a WeChat app and so on. And then... Send us, we'll give you a certificate to say, I, you know, the money goes to help war orphans or all those landmines where people have lost legs and children that need the infrastructure. We would hope you have so much to say, and we have so many more questions. We hope we can get you back in a few months if that's all right with you. Yeah, I'm very proud of my school, of Mm. ICCIC, and of Roots and Shoots, and uh, and all join in. All right. Thank you again for your time. Thank you. 